We're starting a new series this morning called Every Part Matters. And I sort of felt that, you know, depending on, on how I present this, there could be a number of people who, on seeing the title of it, are going to think, uh-oh, he's gunning for me. Because there's, there's often a, a, an uncertainty and a guilt about the things of God. Um, as, I, I was, as I was preparing for it, I came across this, um, this quote um, I'm not sure it was Instagram or Facebook, but it just piqued my interest. And it's this one here. <laughs> the fastest land mammal is a toddler who's been asked what's in their mouth. <laughs> and uh, it reminded me very much of my granddaughter Willow, who as soon as you ask that question gets a gleam in her eye and she just makes it as far away from you as possible. <laughs> but... It interested me because it doesn't matter what the child actually has in their mouth. There's an association there. There's an accusation and an admission of guilt, no matter what it is. They could actually have food that they're supposed to be eating in their mouth. But as soon as you ask them what they're eating, they're off. And, and I think as Christians, we often get a bit like that about our part to play in the kingdom of God. It's a, it's a bit like that office mentality. Jesus is coming. Quick, look busy. Because we're afraid that if he comes in and we're not looking busy, he's going to say, well, what are you doing? What are you supposed to be doing in the kingdom of God? And we've got this, this guilt about what our role is in the kingdom of God, and, and more specifically, what our role is in church. And it matters to us that we matter, and that's okay. But sometimes I think we confuse important with impressive. I had an embarrassing incident a couple of years ago right here in this hall because um, for those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm, bivoca I'm a bivocational pastor, which is a fancy way of saying I've got to have another job um, to uh, survive. And I, I do uh, graphic design mainly for the screen printing industry. And so a lot of the things I, I, I do end up on the back of hoodies and T-shirts and things like that. And a couple of years ago, I got a, a piece of paper from the, the uh, company that I do a lot of work for, uh, which had a, a, a base clef on it with an only brass band sort of cleverly written into the side of it as a, as a 3D image on a piece of as a pencil sketch. And I hate those things because pencils and computers don't actually fit well together. Um, computers prefer straight lines, thick and, or thin and black. And so I, I modified this image and added names to it and, and put you know, a, a banner across the top, only brass band, and sent it off. And, and they got printed. But because this hall, as you may know, is also hired by the Kensington and Norwood band, they had a, a night where the only band came to practice with them. And I let them in. And I happened to notice that they were wearing a hoodie which had this design on the back. And so, full of my own self-importance, I turned, turned to it and said, oh, that's because I very rarely get to see the finished product. So it was great for me to see it there. And so I blurted out, hey, that's great. I designed that. And I said it to exactly the wrong person. Because she turned around and said, no, you didn't. My father did. Because he was the one who'd done the original pencil sketch. And in that very moment, we'd both made quite different mistakes. I'd, I'd overestimated my ability to impress, and she had underestimated my importance in the process. 
And I think when it comes to the kingdom of God, we're all too eager to impress. I won't tell you about the embarrassing conversation we had after that. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, we all, we're always looking to be impressive rather than important in God's eyes. And sometimes being important in God's eyes is less impressive to man than it is to God. And so the thing we've got to recognize is it might not be as impressive as we'd like, but it actually really matters to him. So let's discard these fixed ideas we have about our importance and our impressiveness and open ourselves to what God actually wants to do in our lives. Can I just pray? Let's bow our heads. Mighty God, we're here with your Holy Spirit speaking to us. And so we commit ourselves this morning to open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts to listen and hear what you have to say, Lord. Inspire us and encourage us, not just to thinking differently, but to actually taking action on what you say. Because that gives us our best and blessed life. Thank you for instructing us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. The idea that every part matters when it comes to our Christian faith is a sometimes subtle but a constant thread all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And although we think it refers to us because of what we read, and we'll read this later in Ephesians 4.16, we find that it's actually expressed in many different ways throughout Scripture. The Old Testament actually builds a story of God's plan for his people by revealing our needs and in fact our craving for a Messiah through various literary means that illustrate and emphasize humankind's failings. Uh, the main one is just wanting to do it our way. Um, and it also builds a story of God's patience with our recalcitrance. Here's a nice word. Now the Old Testament builds our understanding of God and documents our hopes and expectations in poetry, narrative, song, and dramatic prose. Each form of literary artifice works in a different way to reinforce the message, and although we don't always understand them, every part matters. Every part of the Old Testament is significant. Every part builds on the parts before it and around it. I think sometimes we get this, this idea that all these books came together and formed, you know, oh look, if we put them together, we can call this the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. But we need to actually realize that they're actually built one on top of the other. The authors of subsequent books actually had the ones before to look at. In fact, they'd memorized them. And so what they wrote, what they experienced, is tied in very deeply with what has gone before them. And the New Testament builds on this tradition and expands on it while remaining intimately linked to the Old Testament. And it's perhaps best illustrated by this little diagram. When I say little, it's a big diagram, which you probably can't read of from there. But this is, this is a diagram which shows how many Bible passages are directly cited by other Bible passages. And so, for instance, if we look here, this, this thing up the top on the sort of 11 o'clock position is the book of Psalms. And these are Romans, Hebrews, Matthew, and Acts. And as you can see, there's a huge number of references to the Psalms in the New Testament. And you might think that's impressive. But they're only direct citations. If we look at chains of similar themes, words, events, or people 
that are linked together in the Bible, we get this. There are 340,000 cross-references that identify similar themes, similar words, events, or similar people that link different parts of the Bible. So we can see that the written word of God isn't just something that people slap down in the hope that one day people might read it and think it was a good idea. It's actually a very... It's the, you think there's 340,000 hyperlinks. Imagine if they had the internet back then. All the HTML they'd have had to write. Luckily they didn't because we wouldn't have understood it. But anyway, so throughout Old Testament history, it was the, the written word, or more often the remembered word, that gave shape and meaning to the lives of God's people. But then Jesus came along and turned the whole world upside down. Because up until that point, very few of the people of Israel had had actually any personal contact with God himself. This was a privilege or a duty afforded only to priests, kings and prophets, with few exceptions. And it only happened under certain circumstances. The tabernacle or the temple was one place where God could be approached in person. But then only by the high priest. The other personal connection God had was mainly through his prophets in order to encourage his people when they were on the right track or chastise them when their disobedience led them into ruin, which seemed to happen an awful lot. And this made the Hebrew Bible or our Old Testament the most important and reliable personal connection to God the Israelites had. Remember this whole idea of reading scripture or being, in, being deeply immersed in scripture was a community activity rather than an individual devotion and every part of scripture mattered. However, the death and the resurrection of Jesus made it possible for every believer to have access to God the Father. Furthermore, today, Pentecost Sunday, is a celebration of that time that the promised Holy Spirit first filled the disciples. And we read about that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 3, where it says, Then what looked like tongues, flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. But we all know, we've all heard it said, with great power comes great responsibility. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says, it tells us what our responsibilities are. It says, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Now, you could get a bit confused here. What, am I a stone or am I, am I a priest? Am I a stoned priest? Um, or perhaps I shouldn't have gone there. Um, it says, through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. So instead of bystanders to a lot of what goes on in God's kingdom, we have suddenly been elevated to not only being part of the temple itself, ourselves being a temple, but we are God's priests to bring sacrifices that please God. So we have quite a sudden change in the emphasis of the kingdom of God. Along with the tradition of scripture where every part matters, for the first time the phrase every part matters applies to us as believers. We've become kings, priests and prophets in the service of God. Anybody who wishes to leave now, it will not be held against you. Paul uses the metaphor of the human body to get across the importance of his message of unity among believers. 1 Corinthians 12.12 12 says, The human body has many parts, 
But the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. He then goes on to say, yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not part of the big body because I'm not a hand, it does not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less part of a body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? Might be a good thing. Continuing on, he emphasizes the diversity of various parts of our body and how every part matters. But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Now, I think it's important for our understanding of the church to recognize that Paul is using the human body as a metaphor for the church. He's not trying to say that the church should operate or look like the human body, even though we as human bodies do actually make up the body we call the church. Does that make sense? Because none of us have been designated the brain of the church. None of us the heart, the hands or the feet. Most of the five-year-olds would like to be the end that produces the farts because farting is very important to five-year-olds. Elon Musk is a big five-year-old because he has the only car I know of in the world in which you can program farts into. But we're not, although we use it as a picture to help us understand the whole idea, we have to get rid of this idea that we actually form part of that body. Some people like to think of themselves as the eyes of the church or the heart. Some people like to think of themselves as the brains of the church. I won't admit to that sin at all in my early days but we haven't been designated as part of that metaphor we actually have a purpose as part of the church in fact Paul describes some of the parts of the church in 1 Corinthians 12 in verse 27 he says all of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it here are some of the parts God has appointed for the church. Now notice that this isn't all of them. It says, first are apostles, second are prophets, third are teachers, then those who do miracles, those who have the gift of healing, those who can help others, those who have the gift of leadership, those who speak in unknown languages. Notice how there are some odd ones snuck in there. In the middle of all of that, those who can help others. Doesn't sound like a very spiritual gift, does it? But it's right in there. He goes on to pose a question in verse 29. Are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret unknown languages? Of course not. So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. Notice he doesn't ask the question, do any of us have the ability to help others and he doesn't say of course not I think we all have the ability to help others but I believe that God will give us the gifts we need 
to do the work he has called us to do. He's also placed us in the perfect location to exercise those gifts. Because the, the two most common questions Christians ask about how to outwork their faith are what is my gift and where does God want me? And they're like, that's, that's actually a very, I don't want to be glib about this, but there's two very simple answers to that. Your gift is what you earnestly desire that is most helpful. We've just seen that in 1 Corinthians. And the second thing is God wants you where he has put you. Because like everything in our faith walk, God does what we cannot, and we are supposed to do what God has called us to do. Ephesians 4.15 says, Instead we will speak the truth in love. There's a whole message on that. Growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. God makes the whole body fit together perfectly. That means he's placed us where he wants us and he's done it perfectly. Our contribution is to do the special work we're called to. Notice that the other parts grow and the body is healthy and growing and full of love, not because Jesus has put us in the right place, but because we're doing our part. Too many Christians think that if things aren't going the way they would like it in church, that God has actually put them in the wrong place. Ephesians 4.16, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As far as I can recall, God doesn't make mistakes. So we need to actually get away from this idea that if things aren't going right, we're in the wrong place. Because it's actually up to us. I've actually had a person a couple of years ago barge in in the middle of our worship rehearsal come up to this altar, fall on their knees and cry and say that God had led them to this place to ask forgiveness of sins and to dedicate their life to him. One of the most emotional and scary things I've ever seen. I mean, this person had obviously been touched by God. God had brought him into this place and, and he, he'd got this revelation from God that he was meant to be here and that this was, it was life-changing for them. Six months later, they left because they didn't agree with something I said. God didn't ask them to leave. They didn't feel that God had led them somewhere. He just got his knickers in a twist. And all too often that happens because God leads us to a place and we expect the place God leads us to to be comfortable and happy and joyous and with no challenges and everything fall into place the way we'd like it to. But no, God has put us in a place for what he wants to do. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's not what we want to do. You know, I, 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 I'm up here preaching and I could say, look, you know, whatever God calls me to do, he, one thing he hasn't called me to do is clean toilets. And yet I spent the first couple of years of my Christian walk cleaning toilets because somebody had to and I was available. And so I said, okay, I can come in and do that. Mainly because I, I, I wasn't afraid to do it because the skill level required is fairly low and I felt <laughs> quite confident that I could handle that sort of thing without too, too much trouble. 
But the, the, the honest truth is we set the tone for our church, not Jesus. I mean, I said, uh, I think it was last week or the week before, I said we should stop inviting Jesus into church because he's already here if we're here. We bring him in. It's nice that Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. He's already here. He came the moment you walked in the door. What we, what we need to do is invite him to continue battering on the doors of our hearts and our minds uh, in the hope that one day we'll hear him or that we'll listen, that we can hear him, but we're just too busy going, la, 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 in case something gets through that we don't actually want to hear because we don't actually want to do it. See, he's just waiting. Because he's fit to get us together perfectly, he's just waiting for us to get our act together. And what has he asked us to do? Has he asked us to save the world? Has he even asked us to build the church? Has he asked us to be missionaries, evangelists? Has he asked us to be street preachers, aid workers? He actually hasn't asked us to do much. Just our own special work. Because it says in Ephesians 4, 15 to 16, as each part, I know we don't like feeling part of a machine, but who knows we're in each part? You're in each part, I'm in each part. As each part does its special work. So you are special. Doesn't matter what work you're doing, God considers it special. And remember, what's important to God isn't necessarily impressive to man. A lot of people come into church and they look at the preacher up the front and they say, I want that job. Stupid, I don't want this job. <laughs> God forced me into it and gave me a gift to actually keep doing it. But it wasn't me. I had to grow into this. And I actually had to allow God to grow me into it. I, I, who loves getting prophecies? Who loves people speaking God's word over them? I used to hate it because every, I mean, you get strangers out of town who hadn't known me more than 30 seconds and they'd say, that, that guy in, in the second row here, next to the blonde. I mean, my total identity when I first became a Christian was he's the guy with the blonde. Everybody could remember Vicky. He's Vicky's husband. Nobody could remember my name, but they knew who I was with. And they'd say, you, yes, yes, you, you, you. Uh, God wants to tell you you think too much. And I'd be, and? No, no, that's it. And I'd sit there thinking, oh, how do I stop that? Oh, I'd have to think about this. Um, <laughs> and the next person would come in and, you know, they'd be preaching. Suddenly they'd stop and look at me. I'd think, here we go. Yeah, you, you, next, next, to, next to Vicky. Um, uh, God wants to tell you you think too much. And I got to the stage where I'm thrown out. The, what, what on earth do you want me to do, God? And it was actually Fergus McIntyre who actually got quite violent with me. And I mean physically. He was not, not painfully. But he, he said, look, stop worrying about what God is going to do and just let God do it. Relax. And he hit me in the chest and I staggered backwards a couple of feet. And he said, see, it's not about falling over. He said, I'm pushing you. It's not the Holy Spirit. But the thing is that if you can allow yourself to relax enough to fall over, God can work with you. 
And, that, and, and I, I relaxed. Yep. No, you don't touch me again. But so that God doesn't actually want us to do a lot. He has got something planned for each and every one of us. But we actually have to let him in. We actually have to let him do it. We actually have to stop thinking about what it might be like and trust. It's a, it's a bit like a trust fall, if you like. There was somebody there to catch me. But I just felt it was, it was ungainly and um, you know, just not cool to fall over. I mean, I was perfectly in control of my body. Why should I fall over? And I had to actually realize that it was a question of letting whatever the power of God wanted me to do get past that physical barrier as well as the mental barrier that I had to allow his work to begin in me. And I think we need, we need to... We need to recognize that. Our special work is what he has called us to do. And you need to ask that question, what is my gift? Because God will tell you. And he will tell you how to use it where he's placed you. Now that doesn't mean that you're placed in a certain place forever. Don't get me wrong and say, look, I've just got you here because I've pinned you all here and none of you can leave. There are some situations where God speaks and people get sent out. And they get sent out with blessing, a purpose, a role, because God has actually sent them, rather than them actually ignoring where God's placed them and leaving because they're ticked off with something. We're called to do our own special work, not somebody else's, just our own. And in doing that, guess what? Other people grow. The church grows and is healthy and is full of love. Simples. It's interesting that after the verse in Corinthians where it talks about us as a body comes Corinthians 13, which is known as the love chapter. And I think it's really interesting that as Paul describes how we are put together and how we are a body, that instead of launching into how that body should operate, what we should do, how we should think, what we should plan for, his very next chapter is all about the love that we should have for one another. Because don't forget, I mean, we have a plan and a purpose. And although it's kitsch, we've got to remember we're human beings, not human doings. That we've been called here for something more than just action. We're called here to love. Love is what people see. Love is what the unsaved see in us. Love is what gets them saved. Not doctrine, not scripture, not knowledge of the word of God. The fact that the love of God actually shows through us. And so I'm going to explore that concept next week. But this week, can I, can I ask everybody just to stand? Every week we give an opportunity for people to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord, as their Saviour, to start a walk of faith as a, not just a believer in Jesus, but a follower of Jesus. And we do that by making a pledge. It's like an oath. 
And we don't, we don't use oaths very much. And I've come across it recently. I'm working through probate with my father's will at the moment. And uh, to actually get something done, I have to prove my identity by giving my identity documents to somebody who is capable or has authority to take oaths in the state of South Australia. I thought, that's a really weird description of someone. I mean, a justice of the peace is basically what, what they're after. But it's this idea that in doing so, I am actually providing my word. I am making a promise and a pledge. I am actually authorizing somebody to, to give me my identity. And I, that, that is what we do in prayer. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're actually taking an oath. We are standing up and saying, Lord, I give you the authority to be in charge of my life. You are the person who, in whom I believe, to whom I pray, and I give my life over to you. It's a big thing to do. But this morning, as we're talking about this whole idea of connecting with our purpose and connecting with our place in God, I think it'd be a good idea if we all prayed that prayer together. If you're praying it for the first time, if you are making an oath that you believe in and you want to actually follow up on, I encourage you to come and see me after the service. And we can talk about what the next steps as a new believer would be great for you to start. But for the rest of us, I think it's a great reminder of who God is and how he impacts our life. So can I get you to repeat the words of this prayer after me? Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for forgiving my sin. I accept that I am a child of God, that you are my Lord and you are my Savior. I turn from my old ways and I take up my cross and follow you. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. I now proclaim that I am a child of God. Amen.